All right, Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we started this last week. We started a new look on what does the Bible have to say about church. And we looked at three principles last week. I'm going to review them uh, this morning. And then we're going to get into the last three. But there are six main principles that Paul writes here as he defines for us what is the church. What is the church to look like? What is the church to be about? What is the church to aim at? So one of the themes that is in Ephesians 4 and really runs through the book of Ephesians is the idea of unity. And that is a critical need in the church, not just unity in regard to getting along, but unity, as we talked last week, in our belief system, our understanding of the doctrine that has been set forth for us. You look around the room this morning, we are diverse. We are different. We come from different places of the country. Uh, we come from other countries. Um, we have different backgrounds in which we have grown up in. But we all have this unique thing that when we came to know Christ at salvation, the Holy Spirit at that moment gave us spiritual gifts. So everyone who knows Christ has a spiritual gift that they have been given. But as we began to look at last week, there's another gift that God has given to the church that are different than the spiritual gifts that each one of us have that we are to use to build up the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 4 there, if you would go back to verse 8, Paul says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So there are spiritual gifts in three other places in the New Testament define what those gifts are. Peter writes about it. Um, Paul uh, also communicates that in a couple of places as well for us to understand what the spiritual gifts are. So all of us have a gift to use for the building up the body, to minister to one another, and to grow the church. But then there's another gift that we began to read a while ago in verse 11. Look with me again. So he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And really when you look at the Greek, if you'll study the Greek, you can almost hyphenate shepherds, teachers, uh, putting those two together because shepherds guide and they teach or they lead and they teach. And, and there's, a, there's a, a dual connection that's there that the Greek um, indicates there. So I want to remind us, of where we were last week, and in case you weren't here and you weren't able to catch the sermon online this week, 
I want to I want to make sure that we get the foundational understanding of this before we look at the last three principles. And so let me touch base um, with this. The first principle we looked at last week is one of the roles of the leaders of the church are to equip the saints for the work ministry. specific roles that were given to the church that were to be used in this process of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And the first he mentions are the apostles. Let me remind us understand that. Those who are qualified for this title were those who had seen Jesus. They had been specifically called out by him, 12 of them to join him. Now there's I don't know if debate is the right word, but um, if you remember in Acts chapter 1, Judas is gone. The remaining 11 um, toss some dice. A guy named Matthias kind of becomes the 12th one. And then so, so some people would say Matthias is the 12th one. Others would, and I lean this direction, would say that Paul was going to be the one that was going to replace Judas's role to be this key 12th apostle. Um, and so... One of the things that we know about them is they were all chosen by Christ specifically. They had all seen the resurrected Christ. There were three unique things that the apostles did. They were given the task of preaching. And so early on, when you look at the book of Acts, that's what they did. They were, they were proclaimers of the gospel. A second thing that they did is they <clears throat> had a direct role, just as Jesus did, to deal with the demonic and Satan's kingdom. And so Jesus all over Israel in his ministry cast out demons. The apostles had this ability as well, supernatural ability to deal with Satan's kingdom and cast out demons. A third thing that the apostles did um, was that they had this ministry of signs and wonders that was also like Jesus's as well. This is how you could tell the difference between false prophets, false so-called apostles back in the first century as the church was beginning is to know that the real apostles had this authority to deal with demons and they had um, also this ability to do signs and wonders um, as well. These are the apostles. Now, um, this is my perspective of this. It's, I think it's fairly solid with a lot of really solid people in regard to this. I don't think anybody should be called apostle anymore. I know some denominations do that. But I think, I think the original apostles are the apostles. And I think that when they died out, um, this role of the eyewitnesses and the establishing of the church um, um, died out with them in regard to the title that's called apostle. Now, the word apostle in the Greek, uh, there's one other place in the New Testament where the word apostle is used, and it seems to be kind of what we do here. It, the word apostle means sent one. It's what it means in the Greek. And so there is an aspect of being sent as a, as a believer to go do mission and, and to take the gospel um, to other places. If you'll remember, in the earliest days of the church, so these are the guys that are, they, they've been taught and discipled by Jesus. Um, um, he has poured his life into them. In the earliest days of the church, Acts 2.42 tells us this. It says that the church in Jerusalem devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they were the first primary teachers in the church. Now the second thing that Paul mentions in, Acts 4, in, in Ephesians 4 here is that he mentions the word prophets. Now, the prophets are the ones in whom 
God was giving the New Testament. So I want to remind us, we think the New Testament has just been around for forever, but the New Testament wasn't fully written and put together until a couple of days, a decades after the church was initially began. So in the earliest days, probably the first two decades of the church, there wasn't a written text of the New Testament. So you had the teachers of the church, they were in a sense the prophets. So they were also, most of them were also um, apostles, but they were the ones who were receiving direct revelation from God, teaching the church, And as the church was in Jerusalem, they were teaching. And as the church began to expand outside of that, before there were written texts down, the prophets were ones, again, who were eyewitnesses of Jesus, direct apostles, or had been discipled by apostles and knew Jesus well. We know Jude was Jesus' half-brother, and so he wrote a letter. Um, He was not considered an apostle, but he was one who had seen the resurrected Lord. And so he had that... Um, unique role as well in regard to writing and being used um, to write out the scripture. So the early church needed prophets to teach what was right before the New Testament texts were actually written down. And so as they received the direct revelation from the Lord, they would proclaim it publicly and then eventually they would write it down. And so this was what was happening in the first two decades of the church before things began to be written down. Now, I also believe this, and I think this is clear. I think the New Testament canon is closed. I don't think there's going to be any more books that are going to be written anymore um, that we're going to add an addendum to the New Testament. I think that we have what we have. And one of the ways that we can verify that the scripture has come to us is that it was written by those in whom Jesus had revealed himself. He had called them. They had been eyewitnesses of him. And so there's a verification that we have an authority that rests with them. Um, To give a little bit more evidence of that, if you would, go back, go to the previous chapter, chapter 3 of Ephesians. And let me show you a verse there. So Ephesians 3, verse 4. So he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit had a unique role in the early decades of the church before the scripture was written down to use the apostles to proclaim what they had heard directly from Jesus, what they had seen from Jesus, but then also what they were after Jesus had ascended, what they were receiving and they were teaching and establishing for the church to do and to be about. Um, one more, go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 19 with me. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What is the household of God built upon? Look what he says in 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in the earliest days, God was using the apostles And the prophets, I think some of this also is included in the Old Testament prophets because they were writing about early pictures of who Jesus would be. 
And so these two gifts kind of become the foundation of, of what we understand who Christ is, what the church is to be about, what does marriage need to look like, um, how does the church need to function. So we have received this from the apostles and from the prophets. Prophets beginning again, proclaiming things before scripture was written down, then scripture was written down that we have, and so we have this faithful testimony that has come to us today. Then there's a third role that Paul writes here, and they are the evangelists. Any young pastor, younger pastor, who is going to go and start a church somewhere needs evangelists. This is what evangelists do. Evangelists go into places where Christ has not yet been named, and they proclaim the gospel and they win people to faith. So in the early days of the church, one of the unique roles that God had given to the church were not just those who had the gift of evangelism, though that is there with that, because everybody has the responsibility to share the truth about Jesus. But in the early days of the church, there were unique people who had this role of evangelists, of going into a place like Ephesus, like Thessalonica, like a number of these New Testament churches that we know, and they would go into that city, they would share the gospel, people would come to faith, they would gather the people there, and then the evangelists would do this, they would go on to another city, because that's what evangelists do. They go in, share the gospel, people come to faith, people are gathered there, and that comes to the last role that Paul talks about here. So once evangelists come into a place, and they would win people to faith in Christ, and you've got a group of people that are now believers, what do those group of believers need left behind as they move on to the next town to proclaim? They need pastors and teachers to begin the process of sanctifying believers, the new believers, to know who Christ is. And so Paul gives this fourth one, that there are pastors and teachers um, that care for, lead, guide, and feed the church. Um, This role, pastor-teacher, was important. As a matter of fact, um, when Paul wrote his first letter uh, to Timothy, who was a younger pastor in the city of Ephesus at the church there, he told Timothy these words. This is 1 Timothy 5.17. He said, Let the elders who um, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So these four unique roles were given to the New Testament church early on, two of which died out with um, the apostles and those who had been discipled by Christ in those early days. And then what happened moving forward were these two big roles that remained in the church as far as being people who are alive of evangelists and pastors and teachers. Now, we are still receiving today, right now, in this room, the fruit of the work of the apostles and the prophets. The reason we're, we are experiencing their ongoing work is, is that Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, this has come to us in 2023, and we are experiencing and learning about who God is through the continuing work of the apostles and the prophets. So what are they to do? They are to, Paul says... Equip the saints. I told you last week that this word equip means to, in the Greek, to furnish things. 
So if you have a room in a house, you furnish it. You put stuff in there. If you've got a back porch, you put stuff on the back porch so that so there's places to sit. There's places for community. We have furnished chairs in the room this morning. We have fans. We have air conditioning. So there's things that are furnished in here so that we could be in here. And in life, God, in regard to the church, has furnished the church and given to the church things that the church needs to function so that we can know him and that we can also do the work of the ministry. So the leaders are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And we have been given, we have been furnished with everything that we need to honor the Lord. So the leaders, God gave the leaders this role to do this, to equip people. And the second thing we looked at last week was that effective equipping ministry builds up the body of Christ. And that's in verse 12 there. The word building up just means to edify, to encourage one another, to minister to one another. It is a word that Paul uses 15 times in all of his letters. It's a construction word in which we are to build with sound construction that is connected with the the truth of Scripture. Thirdly, we looked at last week, and our last one was that the building up of the church helps us all to attain the unity of faith, reaching the full stature of the knowledge of Christ. So the ultimate aim of Christian ministry is that we would reach the full stature of Jesus. That's quite a goal, is it not? That everybody in the room this morning, that over the years, that we would reach to the full stature of the maturity of Christ. So Paul says, you do this in the local church until everyone reaches the full measure of the stature of Christ. And we're not going to ever get there, so we are the churches, to continue at the same task that which it began, which is to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry that will build up the body of Christ. And we are to continue to do this until everyone has reached a place of maturity. Now, I talked about last week, and I just want to touch on a couple more things before we look at the last three principles of this text here. When Paul talks about unity of faith here in verse 13, again, he's not talking about just getting along. He has a deeper idea with that. He's talking about a set of beliefs, what we would call doctrine, theology, that is to guide believers. And that's what he's talking about here. That's what this word means, that we would reach to a place of knowledge of the Son of God that would be in agreement about this. So I shared last week, um, we've been at this thing called LifePoint Fellowship this October for 15 years. So we're about a little over 14 and a half years. We have been faithfully doing what we were doing this morning, Sunday after Sunday, for 14 and a half years, proclaiming the truth from the scripture, continuing to do this. This is our aim, this is our goal. And eventually you hope it should be the case, is that with a body of believers that continues to grow up together and continues to mature together, that there will be no more disagreements about the nature of the Son of God anymore. We are to grow up, Paul says here, to the full stature of Jesus where we know who the Son of God is. That we're not debating His humanity or his divinity. Now, there'll be people that are new believers that don't understand those things. But for those of us who have been around, 
We need to grow up where there's an idea and a clear understanding about the doctrine of who Christ is. Notice what Paul says there, that we would develop a maturity to the fullness of Christ in the knowledge of the Son of God. We are to eventually, in our faith, to become experts on who Jesus is. That's to be the thing that we are in in firm agreement about, that he is the answer to everything. And I hope you say amen, right? That's the key. So we are to move on to that. This word knowledge that Paul uses in 13 means full knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge that's experienced. It's just not memorizing facts and things. So the, the aim is, is that we would reach a unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God that would bring about a maturity in our lives. The goal is Christ's likeness, a perfecting of the saints. This is the purpose of the church. So several weeks ago, um, I talked about this um, before, we, before we left on, on the mission trip that we went on. When I got ready to come back from Germany back here and, and thought that I would probably be pastoring again, one of the things that I, I promised the Lord back in Germany of, of sitting down with Scripture and beginning to think about what does church need to look like and, and, and what kind of church would I lead, I told the Lord back then that I was going to go after a mature church, a deep church. That it wasn't going to be about how big we are. It wasn't going to be about um, how unique our building is. And we kind of have a unique building. We have a red barn looking building that's a little off. This is the center of the building right here. If you look up there. This is not the center of the building. This, This is right here. And so it's not about those kind of things. But I promised the Lord that I was going to preach and preach and preach and preach. And call the people that came to have deep knowledge of the Son of God, that we would become experts in knowing who the Son of God is. And that was what I promised the Lord. And, and I'd, I'd leave all of that with Him and the call for us, for me, the call for us, for the elders, the call for, for you as a, as a faithful member of this body, serving in the manner in which you do here, is that this would be the aim for your life as well, that we would reach the measure of the fullness of of Christ. That's the standard. I need you to hear that. And then we're going to move on to point four. There is one standard of measurement for the church. Is the church becoming more like Jesus? That's it. There's not another. It's not how many people are coming. It's not um, how dynamic is the teaching ministry, how dynamic is the youth ministry, The true measurement, the biblical measurement is, are the people of that church maturing to a place in deep knowledge of the Son of God and they began to look like Him, Christ's likeness, that they are being transformed. It's a long process to get there, by the way. And I'm still breathing, so we're going to do this today. If I'm breathing next week, we're going to do this again. We're going to proclaim the glory of Christ in the authority that is in the eternal word of God. And we will practice this and practice this and do this over and over. All right, Ephesians 4, 14. Here's the the next principle that Paul writes here as to why the church needs to aim at Christ-likeness and maturity, fullness of Christ, because there's a danger. 
Here's the danger. And it's verse 14. Let's read 14 again. So coming out of 13, let's read 13 with that so that we make sure that, let me get back there myself, so that we can see that. 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Here's a fourth principle about the church. Spiritual maturity, aiming for spiritual maturity, reaching to the fullness of Christ, prepares us to withstand human cunning and crafty deceitful schemes. Now there are two battlefronts right now, regardless of culture, but we know this culture well, two battlefronts that the church is facing in which it is being attacked. So if you would turn to Ephesians 6, it's just a couple of pages probably over. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Here's the first attack upon the church in regard to trying to keep people from spiritual maturity. Verse 11, Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So one of the... One of the first attacks upon the church and the people of God is by Satan himself. He is a schemer. So Paul says, you got to put on the full armor of God to be ready for that. So now back in chapter 4, in verse 14, so we're dealing with not only the schemes of Satan, but secondly, we are dealing with the schemes of evil humans, wicked humans, cunning humans, false teachers... So in 14 it says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness, here's the word again, in deceitful schemes. So watch, why is the church struggling today? Why is the church seeing so many people fall away from the church? Why is the church seem to have lost a power and authority that was once there in its practice. One, we are under attack by the enemy himself. Secondly, there are false teachers that are there who are wise in what they do to manipulate and to be deceptive. But the third and the main reason is, is I believe that the church has abandoned the aim of Christ-likeness And if you abandon the aim, which is the purpose of the church, that everybody would grow up to maturity, to be like Christ, when that is set aside for something else, then the church is aimless. The people are tossed to and fro because they don't know the the solid things that the scripture speaks about. When I was a kid, and some of you can think this way, some of you are too young and you have no idea what I'm about to talk about, but just indulge us that this is true. I want to talk about coming to church 20 years ago. Maybe I'm safe saying 20 years ago. We used to come to church, and the only thing that we brought to church was ourselves and our family and a Bible. You know what we bring to church today? We bring ourselves, our family, a Bible, and an electronic device. It's a distraction. 
and we 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 have we have added these things and i and again i'm i'm not saying that if your bible is on your phone that you're sinning but maybe you are if it's a distraction for you i'm just i'm just saying if it's a distraction for you and and you're getting messages as you're reading your bible that's a distraction for you and so we're going to have a new policy that you have to turn in your phone in the foyer when you come in okay <laughs> We're, we're just going to make it there. If I see it, we're going to have people come to your aisle and take it up from you on Sunday mornings. We're not going to do that. But if there's a part of you that said, oh, no, you're not, then maybe you ought to check your heart. Do you remember when we just used to bring a Bible to church and that was enough? To just look at the text, contemplate the text, and then when it's over, to look at one another in the face, not to see what somebody out there has communicated to us, but to turn to one another and say, what has God said to us today? And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. We are experiencing both of those fronts today in the deceitful schemes of Satan and the deceitful schemes of people who don't know the Lord but talk like they know the Lord, and they are called false teachers and both of these two are literally everywhere attacking the people of God and so Paul says if a church gives up on the aim of people growing up to the maturity and the fullness of who Christ is if that's not the aim then you'll have a body of people who don't know core doctrines that they're not rallied around the nature of who Jesus is and the knowledge of the son of God they're just tossed about and that's that's the result of that and so what happens what brings about this instability to where where a grown adults may have been in the church for 20 25 years they've come and they've heard countless sermons and yet they're still in an infant stage they've never grown up and they've never left that paul is indicating here i think you would agree with me that we are not to stay in an infant children's stage We are not to remain in sixth grade spiritually. We are to grow up. We are to be college type students. Masters kind of students. And again, I'm not talking about going to school. We are to be doctor type people who are experts on the nature of who the Son of God is. That's the aim. And if it's not the aim, then you're going to have people who have no spiritual stability whatsoever. They're just tossed to and fro by the waves. And not only that, this word infant here or children in the Greek means this. It means to be carried around like a baby. Babies don't walk around. They have to be carried around. They have to be picked up and sat certain places. And Paul says here, by using this Greek word, he is saying this, is that people in the church must move beyond being children where they have to be carried around and to this thing, to that thing, that eventually they're getting to a place where they understand the deeper aspects of the faith. So when I was an early dad, I used to tease my kids. Some of them won't remember this. It's before we moved to Germany. And I would say, there's a bear in the backyard. Don't go out there. Don't look out the window. Well, that piqued curiosity. And they're like, are you, are you serious? Yeah, there's a bear out there. Don't go out there. I think later things will be better. But you can't go out there. Kids just believe whatever. Young kids. Church, hear this. 
For every one of us, Paul is calling us, God is calling us, Christ is calling us to move beyond just believing what anybody has to say to a place where we know what God's Word says. Now, we're never going to know everything. We're never going to be experts on all of this to where we just have reached the fullness of the status. But I want to remind us today, we need to know the Word so that when we hear things, we know that's not true. My kids should have said, Dad, there's not a bear in the backyard and just walk out the door. And we need to be those kind of people where we're not buying every kind of thing that's out there. So one, spiritual children have no stability. Spiritual children who remain infants, they have to be carried around to to every different kind of thing and place. Thirdly, they fall easily into the trap of human deceit because they lack discernment about things. And so Paul uses uh, kind of three phrases there. He talks about human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. And the idea is that people who are not taught and not brought up valuing the Word of God can fall prey to charismatic teachers, some new hip thing that the church is doing. And it seems to be biblical and right because all kinds of people are going to it and flocking to it. Just because a book is popular, I've said this before, just because a book is on the top 20 list at Mardell doesn't mean that anybody needs to read it whatsoever. There needs to be discernment with every single thing that we are reading, listening to, and following. Because there are deceitful things that are out there, even in the church. I want to remind you, Paul's not talking about the Gentile world here. He's talking about the Ephesian church. The people in the church need to be careful of deceitful schemes and human cunning and craftiness. So there's, do you remember when you took your kids to the doctor when they were little? And the doctor would say, your child is in this percentile. And you would measure kids that age. Where do they measure up on the average kid? There's not a way really fully... Um, to measure the percentile of a church and the people that are there as to where are they other than are the people looking, sounding, walking, worshiping the way Christ did. So we've all got to get to a place where we are the kind of Christians who in the beginning had a lot of questions about God and God's nature and God's work about things. And maybe we've been given good answers about some of those questions. And what I've discovered is that sometimes through the years, people have asked the questions, they've gotten good answers, and they continue to ask the same questions. And and they've never learned to really chew deeply on the meat so that it becomes internalized. And they understand who Christ is as He is revealed in the Scripture. So before we move on to the fifth thing this morning, I just want to say this. I, it's, it's been one of these realities that you have seen um, as well in our day and time is that I am consistently now in a number of different places being asked to accept by other Christians what the Bible calls evil, that I am being asked to be okay with that. 
Now listen to what Paul said in Romans 12, 9. He said, let love be genuine and love should. As God's people, we are to love people. We are to invest in people. But I also want to remind us what the scripture says. Paul says, let love be genuine, not just toward believers, but to everyone. And then he says this, abhor what is evil. This word abhor, what is evil means to be disgusted by it. So there's this dichotomy that that is to happen in the believer. We are to love people who are broken in their condition and confused about things. Maybe they've been deeply harmed by the church and their perspective of the church in some ways may be correct because of some of the hypocrisy that they have seen. So we let love be genuine. But hear this. We are still at the same time to abhor the things, be disgusted by the things that are evil. And then Paul says in that verse as well, hold fast to what is good. It is becoming more natural for immature Christians to believe a fallen voice that's out there in the evangelical world rather than to believe the sacred text that has come to us. And some of the strongest voices for doctrinal changes that I hear have come from Christians. Christians asking us to change the definition of what love is and to lessen the abhorrent view of evil that we are supposed to have. It is shocking sometimes what we are asked as Christians to lessen our view on by other Christians. So at that time when we, in these moments when we love people but stand our ground for the truth, we are called hateful for standing upon the word of God, for speaking the word of God. But I just cannot apologize that I cannot rewrite the Bible to fit a culture that clearly needs the Bible and clearly needs the Jesus that's in the text of the Bible. And so we love people. We want to pray for people. We want to be broken over people. But we cannot lessen our perspective of what the Bible calls evil. So we are to be compassionate and loving, but we are not to be tolerant of evil. Listen, to be tolerant of evil is not loving. And so we are to be deeply, deeply loving and yet stand our ground in regard to truth. And I'm talking about the church. The culture is going to continue to be evil. That's what it is. But we've got to, as the church, call things as the Bible says them. In case you think that only Paul said that, Psalm 97.10 says, O you who love the Lord, Hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. To love God and all that is divine, we must hate what is evil. We don't hate people. We love people. We pray for people. We talk to people. We share with people. But when tolerance is the way of a land or a denomination, intolerance is the way of a church, And when the religion of tolerance is present, 
it gives some of the most insane and illogical ideas that will only destroy the foundation of the church. And that's why you hear some of the things that are there is that human cunning has drifted into the church and the aim of the church has not been spiritual maturity. So how do you avoid that? Well, Paul says in 15, this is how you do it. You speak the truth in love. So look at 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. 14 has to be contrasted with 15. 14, human cunning, deceitful schemes, deception, Fifteen, no, just speaking what's true. There is a language. Our language, hear this. I lived in Germany, eventually had to learn to speak German. If I moved to another country, I would need to learn to speak that language. There's a language among a people that brings a commonality and a unity to them. Paul says, what's the language That God's people in a local church, what is the language they are to speak with one another? They are to speak the truth. Now, does that mean we're not to lie to one another? Well, of course, it obviously means that. But putting everything in the context, he's been talking about a unity around the nature of the Son of God and the knowledge of the Son of God so that we would grow up into the full stature of the Son of God and who He is. And the only way to do that is to speak the truth. Speak the truth. This is the language that a local church is to have. It speaks the truth about Jesus. It speaks the truth that is in the scripture. It becomes the very thing that we talk about. Now in a moment, and you're going, yeah, no, it's 11.09 in a moment. That doesn't, what I'm about to say, you're like, I'm like, I don't believe you don't. In a moment, the service will be over. I went, okay. And you know, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, uh, you better watch yourself. Did you, get a, did you get a good gift? Was that you or John? Yeah, with, yeah, with, yeah, some other people back there. All right. So listen to this. Here's the danger. As soon as church is over, I, I'm going to kind of challenge us a little bit, challenge myself as well. There'll be a danger as soon as I say amen in a little bit that you turn to the people next to you and say, what are you doing for Mother's Day? What would begin to happen if Sunday after Sunday after the sermon, whether it's me or somebody else, that the first thing that we do when we turn to somebody else is, what did you hear God say to you today? And that our language among our body is initially talking about the truth that has been proclaimed in the room. The local church is to speak the same language which is the truth about Jesus in the text of Scripture. And so Paul says, if you want to avoid being remaining a child who falls prey to human cunning, false teaching, books, conferences that are off and they're not teaching the truth, then you, in your local church, you speak the truth to one another absolutely critical that our language 
is speaking God-centered truth to one another. What does that look like? Peter described it this way. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed, he says, you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so the pathway to avoid maintaining spiritual infancy and moving beyond basic questions and moving into deeper questions and deeper truth and chewing on those things, it's when the people of God in a local body, their language is tied to spiritual truth. And they speak the truth and love. So in my lifetime, I've had people in love come and speak the truth. And maybe in the moment I didn't really want to hear it and my pride on the inside wells up. But there's never been a moment when somebody's come and spoken the truth in love that I didn't, maybe not in the moment and sometimes in the moment that I didn't go, yeah, that's right. And thank you for loving me. Thank you for speaking what needs to be spoken. And so Paul says there's got to be a balance in the church. And listen to what he stresses here. We are not to disregard truth for love. And we're not to only, ex- only express love without truth. Both have to be there. We speak the truth in love. Truth in love. And he says that if you will do that, if your conversation as a church is around speaking the truth of who Jesus is and aiming to be like him in every kind of way, you will grow up. He says here, you will grow up. Look what he says, in every way, in every way, by being a better husband, by being a better father, by being a better friend, by serving better, by being a better teacher, whatever the case may be, we will grow up in every way into him who is the head. He's the central system of this. We grow up into Him. You don't grow up to be like me or like anybody else. We grow up to be like Him, Christ, who is the head of the church. Lastly, this morning, verse 16, the church will be healthy and it will grow up when each part is equipped to work properly and is guided by love. So look at 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, and when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So again, this is an instruction from the Holy Spirit that is now a call upon our lives as followers of Jesus. To be in agreement, to be in relationship with other people, and to be a member of the body. Each part, each person has a significant part in that we belong to one another. Christians are not to see their lives independent from other Christians and have this individualistic perspective about our faith, but we are to see belonging in the forefront of our view. We belong to one another because we belong to Him who is the head, and we are all growing up as a body of believers into the fullness of who Jesus is and in the full knowledge of who he is as the son of God. And so the whole body is joined together. The whole structure joined together is growing up into a holy temple into the Lord. And it's held together, by the way, by every joint. 
Joints are those unique places, ankles and fingers and shoulders, where the body is put together in a unique way. This also, by the way, indicates, and this has become more popular um, since the pandemic, and I think this idea, look at, just look at all of it again before I say that. From whom the whole body, it's joined, put together, joined, and held together. So somebody joins it, it's held together by the joints with which it is equipped so that the body pieces would operate right. And says, and when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So I want to focus on this phrase just for a moment as we uh, close. Joined, listen to those words, joined and held together by every joint. In case you didn't hear that, I'm going to say it one more time, okay? Joined and held together by every joint. It means this. You must be in a local body joined together as that body is functioning together to glorify Jesus and to do the work of ministry. It can't happen if people never come to church at all. They're just an arm out there laying somewhere that needs to be attached to other people so that the body is moving forward together. So some of y'all are elbow joints at life point. And if you stay away for six weeks or you stay away for two months or you stay away for however long, this body is not going to work well. It's going to be weird. Some of us are ankle joints. We're movers of people the way God's wired us. And if you stay away, that foot of life point is not going to move forward in pursuit of God. So the call here, again, Paul talking about this, we are a body choosing to be together and unite together called Life Point Fellowship. And we miss you when you're not here. We're a little crooked if you're not here. Part of us who are, some of y'all are elbow joints, some are this part of the arm that needs the elbow joint for you to be here. And so you may think, well, my life's not that important. I don't know that many people at the church. Well, you know that the more you get to know people of the church, the more that you will benefit the people of the church. They will know you. And so that's why it's important, Paul using this analogy here, is there's no hands that are out there just by themselves. Hands have to be attached to function. And so I don't, know, I don't know what body part you are, but all of us need to be connected. And when we are connected, notice what Paul says there. It makes the body grow when we're connected so that it builds itself up in love. I had a couple of moments on our mission trip, I'm going to close with this. I had a couple moments on our mission trip a couple of weeks ago 
where at three in the morning, one is my wife is FaceTiming me and she knows the time. And I'm like, okay. As I wake up and look at that, I thought, oh no, what's happened? Um, and it was Canyon, I think, on Pam's phone FaceTiming me. Back in the early 2000s, I don't know why they did this, but all the builders in the area put water heaters up in the attic. Bad idea, bad idea. So Canyon's up in the attic showing what's going on in the bottom part of the water heater. And then I'm seeing down below, we have two can lights there that look like shower heads just coming down in the kitchen. Well, I'm in Asia. I can't do anything. And so uh, I, I said, Canyon, run next door. We have a next door neighbor who's a, who's a great guy. And he, he ran over real quick and he kind of shut things down. And then, as I shared with you last week, I got a call um, we're in the Himalayas and get a call from Haven saying, um, uh, I think I need to go to the emergency room again. And so we have that conversation. And then a couple of nights later, there's another conversation in regard to, yeah, you need to go to the emergency room. And one of the things that um, lifted me, being thousands away from my family and not being able to do anything, was that a number of you were texting me. And just praying, not knowing what was going on at my house and not what was going but just saying, we're praying for you. We're praying. And this is what happens when the body fits together. You may not know what's going on, but you may be prompted in the moment to just pray. Because God knows what's happening. And when the body is unified and it's working together, either this is a lie or it's the truth, and I happen to believe it's the truth. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow that it builds itself up in, I love how he closes it, in love. And I knew in Asia that you didn't know what was going on in our house and our family, but I knew as you were texting and saying you're praying for us, that you loved me. And that is what the church should be about. This is Paul's, this is the great, great description of what the local church should be. So next week we're going to begin in Revelation, looking at the church and eventually getting to looking at the seven churches in Revelation and looking at those churches that had some issues. It's interesting, just a little bit of a preview. Seven churches, most likely Paul started all of them, um, probably just in the area in which it's there. We don't want to officially know that. But within about 40 to 50 years, five of the seven churches had become immature churches and were allowing things inside the church that were not doctorally right. So it didn't matter whether the apostles started the church or not. If the, if the church did not maintain its commitment to biblical truth, it allowed other things in. So we want to look at these churches. And we want to see how can we, its life point, learn the lessons of those churches. Let's pray.